weekly podcast of science and the city. The public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. Online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. in shambles and our environment threatened, is there any reason to be optimistic about the future? New York Times best-selling science writer Matt Ridley thinks so. He's looked at the facts about human progress from the Stone Age right up to Google to see how much better we actually have it. From rates of disease and hunger to poverty levels and violence around the world, Ridley argues we're only getting more prosperous as we evolve. Ridley spoke at the Academy earlier this year, and today we're playing his full lecture. I thought I would just start, because of being in this extraordinary and and wonderful and phoenix-like building, uh, by just reading a quote from the historian Lord Macaulay in in the 19th century, which I think serves as a useful theme for for what what I'm going to be talking about tonight. He said that we see in almost every part of the annals of mankind how the industry of individuals struggling up against wars, taxes, famines, conflagrations, mischievous prohibitions, and more mischievous protections creates faster than governments can squander and repairs whatever invaders can destroy. And we're just certainly standing in a building that has been repaired, um, whatever invaders destroyed. Um, uh, My previous four books about human nature have really argued that there is such a thing as human nature, that that uh, that it's kind of the same all over the world, and uh, and has been the same in history and so on. Uh, And I still think that's true, and I'm not going to depart from that a bit, but. you know, I believe if you go back and met Shakespeare or you go back 10,000 years and met somebody painting a picture on the wall of a cave, you would be able to understand his personality. You would understand why he got angry. You would understand why he smiled. You would understand why he was jealous or, or, or in love or something like that. Those kind of things don't change. They, you know, of course, they, there, are, there are overlays of culture on them. But there is a theme of human nature that runs through human society. And yet, something does change. I mean, you only have to look out of the window here to see that something spectacular has changed in in the last 100, 200 years. Um, And that's only the final flourish of something that's been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. And that's really what I want the book, what I want tonight's talk and the book to be about, is is how does this this headlong process of cultural change happen to our species? And what is it? so how did we go from making these to making these, essentially? These are both real objects. They sit on my desk at home. Um, it's not a fake photograph, although I have blotted out the logo on the mouse. Uh, and um, the similarity is, in a way, not interesting, because it just tells you that they're just both designed for the human hand. But the one on the left was made to the exactly the same design. It's an Australian hand axe from about half a million years ago. It was made to exactly the same design for a million years. Well, not exactly, but to pretty well the same design. These things don't change much over a million years. So we had technology, but we didn't change it much. But nowadays, the thing on the right is already obsolete within a few years. Uh, And that's what I want to try and understand. So here's the elevator pitch, the brief summary of the talk, so you can get an idea of where I'm going at each stage. I'm going to argue that things are getting better. People are actually getting nicer as a result. Uh, That'll be a tough one, but I'll have a go. Um, Everybody's, and the reason is because everybody's increasingly working for everybody else. And that's the great story of human history. 
which is a habit that started pretty well exactly 100, well, not pretty well exactly, roughly 120,000 years ago. And that the way it works is that exchange had the same impact on cultural evolution that sexual reproduction had on biological evolution. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to it. It leads to some kind of collective brain whereby the knowledge of what, how to run society is not in anyone's brain. It's, it's distributed among everybody's brains. Um, as a result of which, I'm going to argue, we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, there's some extraordinary changes to come in human society. And those who say it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket very quickly, I think they're going to be wrong. And I'll try and persuade you of all those propositions in the next 40, 50 minutes. Let me just quickly, though, say what I'm not saying, because it's important to, to understand uh, that I'm not saying everything's fine. Quite the reverse. I'm saying there's still a lot wrong with the world, but there's a lot that could, could be put right. Um, and things are certainly not as good as they can be. Um, nor am I saying that nothing's getting worse. There are all sorts of trends that are going in the wrong direction, inevitably, and, and, and there will be. Nor am I particularly saying everything's going to be fine in this country um, or in my country. Actually, you know, if you look at the, um, uh, uh, the uh, impact of the debts that we're taking on in some Western countries, I'm not a great optimist about the next 10 years or the next 50 years in, in Western Europe or, or North America. But I am, I'm talking about the globe. And I'm certainly not telling you to kind of feel good about things. You know, this isn't about, in, in fact, in many ways, people are too optimistic about their own lives. They tend to predict that they're going to stay married longer than they do, for example. Um, and because uh, nobody gets married expecting it to only last 10 years. And, uh, uh, and, you know, there's a sort of genre of books which tells you to sort of love your cancer or something like that. This isn't one of those, I promise. Um, Macaulay again. He said in 1830, on what principle is it that when we see nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? Um, that was in 1830. There's been quite a lot of improvement since then, uh, I will argue. So here's a few examples of how things are getting better. Um, life expectancy. In my lifetime, up roughly a third, doubled in 200 years. Um, uh, we're adding life expect. This is globally. This isn't US or anything like that. This is the world as a whole. We're adding life expectancy at the rate of about five hours a day, which is quite a thought. Um, world product, that's the value of goods and services that we produce in the world um, at a constant, uh, uh, I mean, corrected for inflation. Um, gone up quite fast quite recently. Poverty. This is the latest data on the amount of poverty in the world. It's a pretty steep decline and a pretty steady one. There are various different ways of measuring poverty. Pinkowski and Sally Martin's way is different from other people's, but they're all going down. And if you look at the graph of world growth as opposed to growth in any one country, it's remarkably steady. It shows much less of the ups and downs that you find in, in, other, um, in, in individual countries. You can see recessions. Those are world recessions. But there are only pauses in the upward progress of the graph. Air pollution halved in this country in the last 20, 20, 30 years um, uh, for all these different air pollutants. Well, here's a trendy one, oil pollution. Um, 
I'm certainly not here to claim that it's a good thing that there is a slick in the Gulf of Mexico, let alone um, that, uh, that you know things are improving down there. Quite the reverse. It's a terrible, terrible disaster that's happening down there. But it's worth noting that the total amount of oil spilled, this is from tankers, not from rigs, but if you add in rigs, the picture is very similar, has been going down quite steeply. And the biggest rig spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 1979 um, was so big that if the current one is to match it, it's got to go on for about two years. So, you know, it's terrible, but it's not, it's, it, the, the general trend, um, accidents aside, uh, tends to be improving. So if we can learn from this and make sure it doesn't happen again, then maybe we can make sure even that doesn't happen again. Death rates from water-related diseases in America, largely extinct, clean water. Death rates from tuberculosis, measles and scurvy. Other causes of death. Well, you know, obviously we're not wiping them out as fast as we're wiping out uh, infectious diseases, but accidents are down, heart disease is down, cancer's steady. That's not all that surprising. We're getting older. We should be getting more cancer, but there's no sign of a great cancer epidemic caused by uh, chemicals, which a lot of people predicted in the, in the 70s and 80s. And the AIDS epidemic uh, zooms into the picture in the 90s and then uh, has got considerably better since. So just a summary of how much better the world is in some things that really matter in my lifetime. Uh, uh, since 1955, well, I was born in 1958, but it, you know, the, my numbers are from 1955, life expectancy is up a third, per capita income has trebled. This is all across the world, remember. Food per capita is up a third. Child mortality is down two thirds. That's, that's an incredible achievement. And the population growth rate has halved in my lifetime. That's another thing a lot of people forget. The world, the rate, the percentage increase in population has actually halved. So, up, is this all at the expense of coarseness and unkindness? Well, I would argue not. Um, the homicide rate's gone down pretty steeply since the Middle Ages. Um, the rate of death in warfare, um, it was pretty high in, in the 20th century, but if you compare it with the rate of death in warfare in hunter-gatherer societies, it was about a tenth of that. So although the 20th century was not a great century for violence, um, the general trend has again been downwards. This is a picture of one of my ancestral relations, a chap called Bishop Ridley, being very, very slowly and deliberately burned to death from the feet upwards uh, for the crime of believing that at the communion, the um, bread is figuratively but not literally the body of Christ. And there's a lot of very posh people sitting around watching and enjoying the spectacle. And that's entertainment in the 16th century. Um, it's unimaginable today. Now, there are things that happen today which are not great in the way of cruelty and violence, and etc. But I'm suggesting that if you look at an awful lot of trends in respect of how people treat each other, there's been remarkable improvements. Inequality, which is quite a good measure of the coarseness of society, Inequality is rising in this country. It's rising in my country, at least if you measure it before welfare. If you take into account welfare, which is, after all, supposed to uh, redress inequality, uh, then it's not rising so much. But it's it can rise within countries and be falling globally because it's the poor countries who are getting rich at the moment faster than the rich countries. So global inequality all around the world is actually falling quite steeply. The reason for these changes, I'm going to argue, is that essentially 
we've hit on this trick that everybody's working for everybody else. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the object on the left here, the Australian hand axe, was made by one person for his own use. We know that because you can actually find sites where they were made. You can see the, the, the chips that were flaked off a boulder, and you can see the shadow of the legs of the people who were making them as they sat on the ground. It's, these are incredible sites that have been excavated in, in Sussex in southern England half a million years ago. You can see where the guy sat when he made, it, made one of these things. The object on the right was not made by one person, and certainly not made by me. It was made by hundreds, thousands, millions of people, when you think about it. Somebody had to drill the oil well to get the oil out to make the plastic. You know, when you add up the number of people, the person who sold it, the person who rented the building in which it was made, etc., etc., there's a huge number of people involved. And they were all working for me, to make me a, a, a cordless computer mouse. Very kind of them. <laughs> Here's a very rich chap. He's called Louis XIV, the King of France, and I think you'll agree that he was probably one of the richest people in the world at that time. What makes him rich? It's not that he's got a lot of objects, because you could have a lot of pointless objects. Um, it's that he's got a lot of people to give him what he needs, whether it's objects or services. He can call on the services of other people to, to supply him with what he needs. So, Somebody made the sword. Somebody made the silly outfit he's wearing. Um, somebody brushed his hair in that strange way, and so on. And here's a woman standing in his palace in Versailles, in the Hall of Mirrors, more recently. She's, I just found this picture on the internet. She's a tourist um, who had her picture taken in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. She's an ordinary person. There's nothing rich about her, as far as I can make out. And yet, when you think about it, Somebody made those genes for her. Somebody made that audio device whereby she's listening to a guided tour. Somebody cut her hair. Somebody generated the electricity in the, in the chandelier in the background. Um, the, and tonight, Louis XIV, when he dined at night, he had 498 people to prepare his dinner every night. But she's got 498 people to prepare her dinner, because all she's got to do is go into Paris and choose among 498 bistros or restaurants, where there's, in each of which there's a chef waiting at an hour's notice to serve her. They're not working for her in the sense that Louis XIV's servants worked for him. But what's the difference? And that's the pro it's, that, it's the creation of that process whereby we all work for each other that I think is the great story of human history. And the very, very earliest example of it was probably men working for women and women working for men. Because if you examine modern hunter-gatherer societies, you find that there is an absolutely hard and fast rule that they always have uh, sexually distinctive foraging habits. Men have one way of foraging and women have another. It's, it's a universal fact of, of, of hunter-gatherer societies. It's usually men hunting and women gathering, but it doesn't necessarily map quite as, as clearly onto that. And when you think about it, it is a brilliant system because uh, a man can go hunting and know that if he fails to catch an animal, he can come back and at least there's going to be some roots that have been dug up um, by one of the women in the tribe. Likewise, a woman, can, a woman can go digging for roots and know that the only thing she's got to do to get a supply of meat, uh, every now and then at least, is to dig a few more roots up and trade them in for some meat. So both sides are benefiting from this exchange. And when you think about it, farming is the same, except in this case, it's species that are working for each other. 
This is a picture of three different species working for each other. The dog's working for the sheep, and the sheep's working for the dog, and the man's working for the sheep, and the sheep's working for the man, and so on. They're all working for each other. Now, there are divisions of labor in other animals which, in which individuals work for each other. Classic one is ants. This is a worker ant feeding a queen ant. Um, and she's, the, the, the worker is feed, working for the queen, and the queen's working for the worker because she's producing the worker's nieces as, as babies. Um, but the interesting thing about all these examples is they always happen either within the pair bond or within the family. So an ant colony is just a gigantic family. A coral colony is just a gigantic family. And the one division of labor that they always have is the reproductive division of labor. That is to say, they devolve reproduction um, to one individual. That's the one thing we don't do. Not even in England do we leave breeding to the queen. <laughs> so what we've managed to do is reproduce this habit of working for each other, but among strangers, among people who are unrelated. And that's the question is how that came about and what implications it has that I wanted to spell on. Here's the, the sort of, as it were, mathematical basis of how it works, spelled out in what's called the law of comparative advantage, coined by the stockbroker David Ricardo in 1817, um, and so once described as the only proposition in the whole of the social sciences that is both true and surprising, uh, although I think that's a bit unfair. Um, and I'm going to tell it in Stone Age terms. There are two chaps sitting around a fire called Adam and Oz. Adam takes four hours to make a spear and three hours to make an axe. Oz takes one hour to make a spear and two hours to make an axe. So Oz is much better at both these tasks than Adam. So he doesn't need Adam, does he? I mean, why should he bother with Adam? Because Adam's hopeless. Um, uh, <laughs> So he should make his own spears and his own axes. Well, no, because if you think about it, if Oz makes two spears and Adam makes two axes and they swap, then they've each saved an hour of work. And that's the, now, David Ricardo didn't talk about Adam and Oz. He talked about Portugal and England trading wine and cloth. And his argument was that even if England's better at making everything than Portugal, <laughs> those were the days, um, <laughs> e even if England's better at making everything than Portugal, it's still going to pay England to get its wine by exporting more cloth than to try and make more wine itself. Um, and it's the same point. But the point is that the more they, the more Adam, the more they do this, the better Oz is going to get at making spears and the better Adam's going to get at making axes. So the more true this is going to be, and this process breeds upon itself in a way that other forms of cooperation and reciprocity don't. If you think about what um, the benefit of economic growth, what prosperity is to us, it's, it's a reduction in the amount of time you have to spend getting hold of what you need. Time, I think, is the crucial currency. So here's an example of something that's that's uh, of, of how we've got more prosperous. Um, how long does it take you to earn an hour of reading light? If you're working on the average wage and you want to read by an 18-watt compact fluorescent bulb for an hour, how long do you think you have to work to, to do that? The answer is half a second. Um, half a second of your working time on the average wage is what it costs to buy the electricity, to, to buy the, the light, light bulb amortized over the life of the light bulb, and so on. That's down quite sharply from uh, what it was in 1950. It took you eight seconds then to earn that amount of reading light. 
1880, it would have taken you 15 minutes to earn that amount of light from a kerosene lamp. And back in 1800, it would have taken you six hours on the average wage to earn the, uh, the, 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 the amount of light from a tallow candle which only tells you that the average person couldn't afford a candle in 1800, which we know to be true, because most of them would have, would have had firelight at, 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 as their only source of artificial lighting. But that's an example from um, uh, William Nordhaus's work of just how extraordinary the transformation through technological innovation is um, of how much, of, of what happens to people's prosperity. Because if you think about it, if you've saved all that time now, so you don't have to spend much time earning your light, you can spend that time doing something else, acquiring something else from somebody else. So you give him a job. And that's what prosperity is. So here's falls in the prices of metals relative to uh, American wages. Um, if you need steel, it's got, you don't have to work for so long to get it. And of course, this process got hugely amplified around 200 years ago when we started tapping into fossil fuels. Because at the moment, on average, uh, the citizen of the planet Earth burns about 600 calories per second. That's all the energy in his fuel and his electricity and the fuel that's going into growing his food and all that kind of thing. Um, an American burns a lot more than that and a Nigerian burns a lot less. Try and turn that into the equivalent of what, how much you would how much that would be if you had slaves instead of fossil fuels. Because uh, in the old days, that was the only way of being rich, was to have um, a lot of people working for you as slaves. And that's how pharaohs and Bronze Age emperors were rich. They, they uh, employed people in that sense. And it's, it's, it's roughly 150 slaves working eight-hour shifts on exercise bicycles uh, in your back room to supply you with your modern lifestyle. Um, uh, which is, I hope we all agree, pretty impractical as well as uh, unpleasant. Um, uh, but it gives you an idea of just how much each individual working for each other can amplify their work thanks to the introduction of fossil fuels. And the key moment when that happened was around 1800. And as a result, the world GDP per capita took off like a rocket around 1800. We call it the Industrial Revolution. But it's basically explained by bringing fossil fuels online. And it's no accident that the slave trade was abolished by Parliament in London by William Wilberforce's bill in 1807, the same year that the first large coal-fired, steam-powered uh, factory opened in Ancoats in Manchester. I mean, it, it is an accident. It's a coincidence. But in a sense, the, the idea that fossil fuels made slavery uneconomic is a very important factor that should be remembered. Now, I'm going to argue that this habit of working for each other started 120,000 years ago. Um, and my argument here is that all the things we, we concentrate on about being human, we spend a lot of time speculating, what's so special about human beings? We love telling ourselves we're special, and we are, of course, but um, what is it? And we talk about our imagination and our intelligence and our language and all that kind of thing. An awful lot of it shows up in the uh, fossil record a lot too early to explain. In other words, a lot of the things we think of as special to human were, came along and had no impact on our lifestyle and creating prosperity and that sort of thing. So, for example, standing on two legs, well, that happened a long time before, three and a half million years ago. Uh, and um, 
we invented tools. The first stone tools are two and a half million years. The Australian hand axe, which I showed, could be anything from one and a half to half a million years ago. The invention of tools seems to have had absolutely no impact on our, uh, on our ecological dominance as a species, as it were. Um, fire, well, we don't know when it happened, sometime between half a million and one and a half million years ago. Um, uh, and it had a terrific impact because it unleashed many more calories from the same food. By cooking food, you effectively do external digestion. That means you don't need such a big gut, so you uh, can grow a bigger brain, um, all that kind of thing. That's uh, Richard Wrangham's theory, and I think it's a very important one. But it's not, again, it's too early to explain what we're interested in. Because everything really happens in the last 50,000 years. Language, we used to think that could be quite recent. It could be 100,000 years or so ago. But the evidence is now coming in from the genome, from particularly the Neanderthal genome, which has the same mutations in it uh, that seem to be selected for by language, uh, as, as other humans do. It looks like language may be at least 300, 400,000 years old. It doesn't seem to have had quite the impact that we used to think it did. I might be wrong about that, which is why I'll leave an, a question mark there. But my argument is that the one thing that happens at just the right moment to explain this extraordinary takeoff is the invention of exchange. It's a mundane and rather depressing explanation for a rather exciting thing. Because, you see, Neanderthals lived until 30,000 years ago, and they were terrific blokes. Uh, you know, I, I, they, they had huge brains, on average bigger than ours. They were using tools, beautiful tools they made. They were cooking. Uh, they buried their dead, so they were presumably had you know, imagination, etc. Um, they probably spoke because, as I say, they shared these FOXP2 mutations that seem to go uh, with language. Um, uh, we now know that from Svante Pabo's work in the last couple of years. And yet, they showed absolutely no technological progress or population explosion or anything like that. They were still eating the same things at the end, using the same tools, etc. What's the difference? Well, if you look at Neanderthal tools, they're always found within an hour or two's distance of the site of manufacture. You never find them moving over long distances. And the reason for that, that what that suggests is that they were not exchanging objects between tribes between bands, um, uh, they were not into exchange and trade. And in the Caucasus, where people have been looking at Neanderthal remains in some detail, they've concluded that it's a, it's a sort of networking effect that, that modern humans had that gave them a, a competitive superiority over, over Neanderthals. How do we know that Objects moving long distances implies trade rather than migration. Well, the answer is if you look at relatively recent um, Stone Age people, uh, Australian Aborigines in the last century, you find that their tools are moving long distances because of trade, not because of immigration. So this is a, a Mount Isa stone axe of the kind that was used up until a couple of, uh, well, 100 years ago or so in Australia. Um, it, there was a tribe called the Kalkadun who owned the, the quarry. Uh, and they, they had trading networks with their neighbors. And as a result, the stone axes of Mount Isa are found all over the continent in quite a large uh, area. And that, we know, is because of trade. So what we want to do is go back in the archaeological record and try and spot when it is that we start to find objects moving long distances. And the oldest example of objects moving long distances are these little shells. They're called Nasarius um, uh, winkles. Um, they're found in the, uh, well, these ones are found in the Mediterranean, but um, uh, they, 
have been made into beads. They've had holes drilled in them. Uh, and these ones have been carried 125 miles inland from the coast of Algeria. And the suggestion is that now, these ones date from at least 80,000 years, but the latest estimate from the um, team that's working on this is that they've found ones up to 120,000 years old. Obsidian axes in, in Ethiopia look like they start moving long distances about the same time, uh, but the dating is not yet precise enough to be sure. Now, I'm quite intrigued about 120,000 years ago because it was the last interglacial. Between 125 and 115,000 years ago, it was a very warm period. And in warm periods, Africa is moist and damp like it is now. Uh, in ice ages, it's very dry and inhospitable. So the suggestion is that, that something was stirring in the last interglacial. And there's a wonderful sort of counterexample to this, which is what happens when you get cut off from trade and what happens to your technology in particular. Tasmania was a peninsula on the southern end of Australia until 25, uh, well, uh, when it was first colonized by people 25,000 years ago. Then about 10,000 years ago, it um, was cut off by rising sea levels as the Ice Age came to an end. And the 4,000 or so Tasmanians who were on the island at the time remained there and carried on um, doing their thing uh, on the island for the next 10,000 years in isolation. The remarkable thing is their technology regressed. They lost the ability to make stone tools altogether. They lost, uh, sorry, bone tools altogether. They lost the ability to make clothing. They lost the ability to make fishing equipment. Uh, they lost the ability to make boats, although they did then later reinvent a boat. It was more like a raft. It was made of brushwood sheaves, and it sank after about an hour. And it was propelled by women swimming behind pushing while men sat on it. Um, but um, uh, the, the, now, Joe Henrik has studied this example of the um, Tasmanians and has modeled it and has come to the conclusion that um, what's going on here is not that the Tasmanian brains were getting stupider or anything like that. Absolutely not. There was nothing wrong with them. But that, that they, you need a larger population than that to sustain a technology because the knowledge is held by specialists. The knowledge of how to do things is is, is fragmented among Adams and Aussies, if you see what I mean. If all of us in this room were suddenly marooned on a desert island, how many of the objects we currently possess would we know amongst us how to make? Not a lot. And so the suggestion is that, that the, the, the Tasmanian toolkit regressed because of the, the, the lack of exchange opportunities. And there's a nice control example, Tierra del Fuego, a very similar island, equally cold and inhospitable, not much different in size also at the end of a continent. Uh, no technological regress during the last 10,000 years. Why not? Because the Magellan Strait is very narrow, the Bass Strait is very wide, the uh, canoes of the Ona and Yagan Indians were crossing the Magellan Strait all the time and trading with Indians on the mainland. So my argument is that exchange is accelerating cultural evolution in the same way that sex accelerates biological evolution. If you think about um, technological change, it almost always comes about as, an as a, a recombination and an accumulation of different technologies. My favorite example is that the camera pill is supposed to have come about from a conversation between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. Um, 
And as LTC wrote, the historian said uh, about motor cars when they were first invented, uh, they, were, they looked as though they were sired by the bicycle out of the horse carriage. So you're getting this sexual Im imagery, this idea of cross-fertilization uh, throughout the history of technology. And here's the, the significance of sex in biological evolution. If you imagine two ancestral mammals and one of them invents a uh, uh, milk and the other invents uh, the placenta, um, if they can't bring their genes together through sex, if it's an asexual species, then natural selection is going to choose between them. It's going to say, which of these inventions was superior? will make the other one go extinct. So the red one goes extinct as time goes forward from left to right in the top graph um, because the green one is superior. But actually, you want both milk and the placenta in a mammal. So that's what sex does. It enables inventions made anywhere in the species to come together uh, and join the same team, as it were. And I'm arguing that the same is true of exchange. Once you start exchanging, you can make technology, um, make, make technologies join the same team, and you make technology cumulative for the first time. So the, the habit of swapping, the habit of truck barter and exchange, as, as Adam Smith called it, is central to this notion that this is what set, this isn't the story of humanity, of course there's love and there's jealousy and there's art and all those kind of things as well, but I'm saying this is what gave us cities and, and uh, you know, chairs and, and all the accoutrements of modern life was um, the habit of exchange. Because it leads to a collective brain. Go back to that picture again of the mouse and the axe. I said that the axe was made by one person and the mouse was made by millions. But the interesting thing is that nobody knows how to make a computer mouse. Literally nobody. I mean that quite literally. There is no person on the planet who knows how to make a computer mouse. The president of the computer mouse company doesn't know how to make a computer mouse. He knows how to run a company, hopefully. Um, the, the man who drills the oil well out of which the oil comes that makes the plastic. He doesn't know how to make a computer mouse. I'm, of course, retelling a famous story by an economist here called Leonard Reed, who wrote a book called, who wrote a, a paper called I Pencil, in which the pencil pondered how it came into being and concluded that nobody knew how to make it and was rather puzzled because, you know, who knows? Somebody knows how to cut down a tree and somebody knows how to mine graphite and somebody knows how, et cetera, et cetera. But the knowledge is not stored in any one brain. And that's significant because it means that our species had transcended the limit of our intelligence when it started doing this. We were no longer limited by the size of our brains, as Neanderthals were. Clever as they were, they were limited by the size of their brains. We're not limited by the size of our brains. We have a collective brain. And it's much, much bigger and much, much cleverer than we know. Look out of that window and look at that city um, working brilliantly as a, as a machine. Nobody's running it. It's running itself because the knowledge is shared collectively. Here's Hayek making the same point, and of course, uh, using it in the service of criticism of central planning in 1945. Knowledge never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess. So, if that's the story of how we went from making hand axes to computer mice. Um, what happens next? How long will this process continue? Um, and uh, you know, is, 
what's the natural end point of it? Well, I would argue that it's just got a huge boost. Because until recently, um, if you wanted to make ideas have sex across the planet in the way that I've described, um, you had to send a ship or wait for somebody to come back from China um, tell it with news of gunpowder or something like that. Um, now, of course, people all over the planet can um, share their ideas instantaneously. And the iPhone apps are just one of many examples of, of this that's going on. And if, you know, the way I put it is that ideas are having sex in the most furious and promiscuous way on the internet in a way that simply has never happened before. And that's going to have momentous results in terms of increasing the rate of innovation and the rate of solving of problems. These are the projections for world GDP per capita um, used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, uh, in four different scenarios that they use for their projections. And um, uh, the, you know, the, they may be wrong, they may be over-optimistic or pessimistic, but it's worth just noting what would, where would we be if uh, GDP per capita continued to change only at the rate that it happened in the last 50 years? And the answer is it would be about ninefold higher um, globally by 2100. That is to say, uh, everyone would be about nine times as rich as they are today, which means that most of Africa and Latin America and Asia would have been lifted out of poverty. Not only lifted out of poverty, lifted into something approaching prosperity by our modern standards. And so here's the kind of opportunity we've got if we're going to do something like this. This is what excites me, is that it's, you know, there are going to be problems along the way, but there are also going to be extraordinary opportunities. We've nearly trebled the amount of cereal we get from um, the same amount of land uh, in, in roughly my lifetime. We've done that with the use of fertilizers and pesticides and tractors and uh, selective uh, breeding of different varieties and that kind of thing. Um, and as a result, we've spared land from the plow. If we still had, if we were trying to feed 6.7 billion people today with the yields that we were able to achieve, achieve in 1960, we'd have to plow an area, an extra area, roughly the size of South America. So the more intensively we farm and the more successfully we get yield from acres, the more we're actually able to not just spare land from going under the plow, but even begin to think about returning it to wilderness. And I think actually that that's what we're going to be able to do in this century. How much land do we need to feed each person? Well, if you're trying to live the style of a hunter-gatherer, uh, on the whole, you need about 1,000 hectares. That's three central parks per person. Slash and burn farming, uh, you need about 10 hectares. It, by the 1950s, basically, people were being fed off 4,000 square meters each. Today, it's about 1,200 square meters each. Um, that's how much less land each of us needs to support us in food alone. But there's been a similar pattern in terms of clothing and fuel and other things, uh, a similar decline. So ask yourself, how much land are we going to need to feed 9 billion people uh, in mid-century? Because that's roughly the level at which the population is going to level out um, in around 2060, by the look of it. Um, currently, we, we crop an area roughly the size of Russia. Um, if we went back to 
essentially very early um, farmers slash and burn organic farming, uh, I'm afraid we'd need two-thirds of the entire area of the Earth's continents to um, feed 59 billion people. And given that a lot of the Sahara wouldn't cultivate very well, it wouldn't really be achievable. Uh, well, it definitely wouldn't be achievable. Even with the 1950s yield, we'd, we'd probably have to roughly double the amount of farmland we have to feed 9 billion people. Um, and with today's yields, well, we'd have to plow an area roughly the size of Mongolia to feed 9 billion people at the level to which we feed them today. But if yields were to double again, we would actually need to plow a smaller area than we do today to feed a larger number of people. That's an extraordinary thought. And we're, as I say, they more than doubled. They nearly trebled in the last 50 years. So it's well possible that they might do that again. In theory, you can feed the world from an area that, well, in theory, you can feed the world the area from a multi-story greenhouse the size of Manhattan. But um, in practice, it wouldn't be impossible to imagine feeding the world from an area really quite a lot smaller still. But that's unlikely to happen. And of course, as I say, world population is world population growth rates are coming down fast. They peaked in about 1967, um, and they've halved since then. And the actual number of people added to the world population uh, has uh, been coming down since the late 80s. Uh, it's coming down all over the world. There's only, only one country that still has a high, uh, high fertility and a growing fertility. That's Kazakhstan. Um, everywhere else, um, uh, fertility is either very low uh, or is falling. So that, let me just briefly touch, and this isn't the main gist of the talk, but I think you know, you're bound to be thinking of objections. I mean, surely this guy can't be this mad as to think everything's <laughs> going to be fine. So let me just give, touch on a few areas where, where, where I think the general mood that we should be pessimistic about the planet while being optimistic about our individual lives uh, is probably going to be wrong. And I'm not saying this because I think we should be Pollyannas and run around saying everything's fine. Quite the reverse. I want us to be ambitious about how much we could improve the planet uh, for ourselves. Um, and the first point is just to remind ourselves how much the media and others look for clouds in every silver lining. Um, this is a graph of the number of people dying of VCJD, which is the human form of mad cow disease in England. By the late 90s, there were official projections that up to 100,000 people or so would be dying a year from this disease. It didn't start off with very large numbers. Um, and then it fell a bit, and then it rose a bit. It, it, it went from 17 deaths in 2002 to 18 deaths in 2003. Um, and the BBC described that as figures show rise in VCJD deaths. <laughs> it's not inaccurate, but it <laughs> doesn't entirely give the right impression. And well, what happened after that? Well, that's what happened after that. It's largely over as an issue. Every single case is a terrible tragedy, but it is not. Um, a huge epidemic. Here's another one. This was in the New York Times just a few weeks ago. Um, and it shows that the number of maternal deaths worldwide, that is deaths in pregnancy and childbirth, um, is falling quite steeply, having not been falling for a number of years during the AIDS epidemic, essentially. Uh, and this was published in The Lancet. The editor of The Lancet came under strong pressure not to publish this paper because a number of NGOs were in the middle of lobbying the State Department and the United Nations for funds to work on maternal mortality. And they did not want good news to derail their plans. And this was written about in The New York Times. 
I think they're wrong, actually. I think their argument should be, look how well we're doing. Give us more money to finish the job, if, if, that's, if that's their argument. But it just shows what a, what, a, what a nexus there is of people with a vested interest in telling you the bad news and not the good news. Um, here's another one. This is a, a small piece of data from a published peer-reviewed um, uh, journal, which was used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and it tells you the number of people who are going to be at increased water stress, so essentially, you know, who are going to have trouble getting enough uh, clean water, um, under different economic scenarios in terms of increased um, uh, temperatures and increased carbon dioxide levels. And so by 2085, under all four scenarios, more than a billion people will be under increased water stress. And that was reprinted, basically, in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in 2007. What they didn't re reprint was the other half of the table from the same peer-reviewed paper showing the number of people that decreased water stress in 2085. And in every case, the number is larger. Africa is a subject on which many people are pessimistic. People are always saying to me, well, Asia's come out of poverty, but not going to happen to Africa, is it? Um, well, I think it is. I think it's happening already. Look at the poverty rate in Africa. It's begun plummeting in recent years. Um, uh, I think you're, you're seeing an entrepreneurial revolution all across the continent. You're seeing all sorts of things happening that are very hopeful um, in Africa already. So, climate. Let me just quickly touch on that. And I, I really don't want to derail the whole subject with climate, but of course everybody here knows that one of the big reasons to be pessimistic is to say, well, it's all very well, uh, but we're going to uh, suffer dreadfully from um, uh, global warming, and that's going to derail this prosperity. I've persuaded myself that that's not going to happen, or rather, that it's not going to happen catastrophically. And I want to just show you one or two pictures that tell you why I think that. Uh, uh, and you know, we can then talk about it more afterwards, if you like. Um, the first thing to say is that Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It is going up in concentration. So yes, it is trapping um, heat in the atmosphere. There's an absolutely no question about that. Um, and the other thing to say is there's an absolutely hard and fast consensus on how much heat it's trapping. It's trapping about enough heat so that it will increase the atmosphere's temperature by about one degree if the carbon dioxide level doubles. What there is not a consensus about is what then happens after that because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Models says that there will then be a two degrees feedback, that the one degree will cause two degrees more warming, and that's the green bar, so that the total net warming will be about three degrees. Now, that green bit is not uh, the subject of a consensus. In fact, there's a huge amount of disagreement about it. And the, the, the recent trends in temperature, plus empirical studies by satellites, I think are pointing towards that, that green bar being wrong. <coughs> Um, here's some recent uh, empirical data suggesting it might even be negative, and that what we'll end up with in this century is not three degrees, but half a degree. Now, that could be wrong, but my point is simply to point out that the consensus is about the blue bit. It's not about the green bit. This is the interglacial in which we're living. Um, we came out of the Ice Age about 10,000 years ago, uh, and on the whole, it's been cooling. We've just come out of the longest cold spell in the interglacial, the so-called Little Ice Age. This is the data from Greenland. Um, temperature is 
rising at the moment, but it's got quite a long way to go before it reaches unprecedented levels, and it's not. And, and there have been some very rapid increases, so the, 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 the steepness of the graph is not necessarily unprecedented either. Even if you look at this century in Greenland, most uh, Arctic temperatures have not yet reached the level they were in the 1930s. And that's true in the United States too. Here's the, the dark blue line is United States surface temperature data um, for this century, uh, showing how it uh, hasn't yet reached the levels it was at in the 1930s. But the pink line are the urban stations, and the black line is the rural stations. So urban areas have indeed warmed much more than that and are un in unprecedented territory for this century. So isn't that pretty obvious? We expected that. We know about the urban heat island effect. There's a lot of other causes of warmth in town. that It's not carbon dioxide. It's reflection off buildings and lack of moisture and all these kind of things, and air conditioner exhausts and such like. Um, well, yes. but. The thing is that the National Climate Data Center, when it adjusts these numbers to supply to the inter international panels, it adjusts the rural data upwards rather than the urban data downwards. A lot of people find that baffling and, and uh, are rather um, you know, are not convinced that it's right. So I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I'm just saying that you know there is room for doubt in here that the trends are that worrying. Snow extent in the northern hemisphere up in the last 20 years. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. That's quite a short period. The amount of energy in tropical cyclones. It went up, and then it came down again. And here's why, in the end, I think that we, sh we are likely to solve this problem before it becomes serious. And that is that we're already on a path towards emitting less and less carbon for each unit of energy because we're switching from wood to coal to oil to gas. In each case, you, you emit less carbon dioxide and more H2O for each ton that you burn. So um, if we are about to have a great gas glut because of shale gas, um, that process will continue. If nuclear and solar by then, uh, within a decade or two, become competitive, then I think it'll accelerate, etc. So I think this problem will be solved. I may be wrong, but my point, my, my task here tonight is not to decide on a climate change policy. That's for people with much higher pay grades than me. Um, my task is to tell you whether I think it's likely that things are going to be all right. There may be a a 5% chance of a catastrophe, and that may have very important political implications that we can talk about. But if there's 5% chance of a catastrophe, 95% probability we're going to be okay. And that's really what I'm saying. I think it's probable that we're going to be okay, and the discussion is all about what we do about the small probability that we're not. However, I'm a fool. Because, as John Stuart Mill said in 1828, it is not the man who hopes when others despair, but the man who despairs when others hope, who is admired by a large class of persons as a sage. So I'm afraid I'm not one of them. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. 
As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run at Science in the City. Shoot us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.